Welcome, welcome, welcome to the On The Way Home podcast. I am your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door, where I have the good fortune to work with some amazing people all across the top of the GTA, York Region, Durham, and Peel, trying to prevent and end homelessness. That's what we do and what we have done at Blue Door for the past 40 years. We do not do this podcast alone, however. We actually do it in partnership with the incredible folks of the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. They are doing incredible work every day. They are the voice for Canadians, for this sector. Uh, when things like budgets go through or other things happen, uh, they're pushing hard for things that are important to the sector, like a housing benefit. Uh, and they have the ear of the government and are trying to make big change happen. If you want to see what the Alliance is up to, go to caeh.ca. Uh, there's all sorts of different opportunities for you to get involved in as either citizens or as organizations, and they're doing incredible work. So check them out uh, and be generous if you'd like to donate to either Blue Door or the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. This podcast, maybe you're listening to it on the way home, as our title suggests. You're stuck in traffic. Maybe you're sitting back on the weekend having a coffee and listening to it. We try and celebrate uh, all the amazing and innovative things happening people that are doing good work in the space, the sector of housing, homelessness, health, poverty. Uh, today's guest is no exception. Today I have with me Ricardo Tranjan. Uh, um, and Ricardo's going to tell us a little bit about his journey. He recently wrote a book um, that is really, really interesting and impactful. And we're going to talk all about that and tell you how you can get a copy of that and read it. Um, very, very, just thinking differently. And I think right now we just had a federal budget that passed uh, recently in Ontario. We had a provincial budget that passed as well, neither which really pushed too hard on the housing front or, or really helped um, lend a lot of resources towards uh, working us through uh, homelessness or affordable housing solutions. And so it was uh, it was difficult to swallow. Listen, you know, the federal budget can't be everything to everyone always so you know we we've said our piece we've told uh, the federal government how we feel now it's time to get to work right and build on solutions that we can hand to the government now in time for next year's budget as we move forward but you know before we get to that let's get to today's guest ricardo welcome to the show hello and uh thank you very much for having me great to have you here we uh we start the show always with the same question because it's a very personal one, and that is, what does home mean to you? Well, nowadays, home for me is this very concrete concrete place called uh, Manor Park East. is a neighborhood of Ottawa. Um, my spouse and I, we moved around quite a bit, but about four or five years ago, we moved here, and uh, we're, making it, we're making it home. Um, I remember just a couple months after we moved, my five-year-old looked at me and said, I like here. I was like, okay, dude, let's let's stick around then. And uh, this is where we weathered the pandemic. Uh, this is where we had our second child. Um, we were part of a, a small group of parents that support each other a lot. Uh, the neighborhood will go through some transitions in terms of redevelopments in the near future so there's some organizing some conversations about what it should look like who should um have a voice and participate in this process so there's there's a lot of happening and um, it's a great place to be right now and we're very happy and fortunate to be here 
Very cool. And if I hear you correctly, not to put words in your mouth, but I hear a lot about what makes it really home for you is that sense of community. So congratulations on that and the, the birth of your second child. Um, let's learn a little bit about you. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey into the sector, Ricardo. Yes, well, I grew up in Brazil in the 1980s and the 1990s, which were pretty chaotic times for us. Um, it was the entail of the, limiter the military regime. Uh, they were starting to withdraw in the 1980s. Uh, so that was a big change for everybody. And that was followed by a very serious economic crisis that had, so that had all sorts of consequences that impacted people uh, quite negatively. Um, I was living in this very large city uh, called Sao Paulo and you know, crime rates went off the roof. Um, at that time. Um, so it was a very sort of busy and, 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 and sort of um, there was a lot of happening socially, economically, politically. So kind of um, in the book, I get a little bit into it. I just kind of mention a couple pieces and beats of that story and how sort of um, triggered, I think, um, an interest in, in, in understanding how all of these things come together and and how they lead to to the outcomes that they that we see um but then eventually i kind of came uh, i came to canada in my early 20s um and that was thanks to a very generous um scholarship uh by trent university uh paying university in brazil would have been hard for me um in my situation never mind you know having an education abroad, but uh, Trent and the Peterborough community, which I refer to as my Canadian hometown, um, made that possible. And then I got really into it. The opportunity to just kind of read and understand this stuff was fascinating. Um, so, you know, another graduate led to a master's degree, the led to a doctorate degree. And, um, but when I was done with all of those studies, I wanted to, to go back to, to, to sort of more applied work and, 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 and research that in debates that, were more um, directly related to what was going on and, and then sort of trying to help and shape um, uh, social and, and political outcomes. So I got a job at the city of Toronto. I worked there for uh, four years, I think. I was um, helping to develop then to manage the city's poverty reduction strategy. And then eventually I moved to the Canadian Center for Policy Alternatives the really cool think tank where I work right now. And I do all sorts of, of research, um, mostly the sort of political economy of, of social policy, including housing. Very cool. Thanks for shaping that journey. And it just even from your early days, you know, um, and, and how that kind of informed in, in you know, your, your journey uh, into this work. Now, you've done a lot of great work around poverty reduction, you continue to do that. We often talk in this podcast about the importance of good policy over bad and how that's led us down this uh, this path to where we are now. But you can add to your, your um, roster of great work author. Now, this is your first book? Is this your first book? It's my second book. Second, my book. second book. All the right, first right. one was more focused in on Brazil, which was the sort of the topic of my academic research was essentially trying to understand a little bit about that messy context in which I grew up and focusing on participatory democracy and how participatory democracy uh, in some ways helped to bring about policies, economic policies that have really good impact 
uh, for low and, and moderate income families. So that was a more academic uh, piece and it was out a few years ago. But there's themes of that in this new book. The new book, uh, the second book, so you're, you're a multi-published author, let's say. Now, the tenant class, there are some themes about what you're just speaking about, right? And how we, we kind of contribute to that. Um, can you talk to us about how did the tenant class come about? You know, was it a long process? Did you start this years ago? Was it during the pandemic? What made you uh, think about writing this book and on this topic? Yes, during the pandemic, I got pulled more into housing debates um, for a number of reasons of how our team was divided. Um, um, I tended to focus a lot on the income side of low and um, moderate income households in Canada, looking at income supports, looking at wages and what sort of comp what composition um, their income um, or the, the composition of their income and, 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 and different levels of income and so on and so forth. But during the pandemic, I moved a little bit to talk more about rent, in part because we didn't have any supports directly focused on tenants, though CERB helped a lot. Um, and I started producing more and more and more on, on housing and, and rent in particular. Um, and then sort of, you know, after, you know, the first couple of, of years of, of, of the pandemic, I decided to, to write um, something slightly more substantive, you know, sink my teeth on, on, on that housing question, as some have called. Um, and then what I did was I just sat down, you know, and, and sort of brought my political economics kind of background and training into this sort of new question of, of, of housing in Canada and, and, and really high rents and questions of housing affordability and all of that that we kind of know well. And I wrote a two-page proposal and I strongly believe that social movements should tell researchers what to do and not the other way around. Um, so I circulated that two-page proposal uh, around and passed it to tenant organizers in six, seven cities uh, across the country and said, can we talk about this? Do you have time to read it? Can we talk about this? Can I call you? Can I come by and have some coffee and talk about this? And, and they did. They talked to me about it. And the feedback was really positive. Uh, they said, no, there's something here. There's something we haven't heard. There's something that reflects our experience. Is you know, do do that. And I was like, okay. And that got me really enthused about the project, knowing that um, it seemed that it was going to be helpful. It was going to be useful to folks organizing. So then I sat down and I started writing it and then kept getting slightly larger and larger. And I was like, man, I, have, I think I have a book here, not a report. And then that's how it came about. I pitched it to Between the Lines and they were excited about it. And then they helped me to, to bring it to the finishing line. Very, very cool. I, I, it's fantastic. And I'm sure, I mean, you could probably write six books on this, but I love right at the beginning, like the talks about, you kind of turned this whole idea or the thought person of, of housing crisis on its head, right? The traditional thinking. Can you talk a little bit more uh, about that for our listeners? Yes, the book starts by arguing that there is no housing crisis. And by that, I don't mean in any way to belittle the very difficult experience that so many people are having right now um, in sort of finding or maintaining um, housing. But it's just the notion that if 
if this were a real crisis, the sort of level of response that we would expect from governments would be very different, right? This so-called housing crisis has been going on for 70 or 100 years, depending how you want to count, for a very long time. And we keep talking about um, very similar palliative um, solutions to the problem, and we haven't really kind of gone after the, 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 what I consider to be the fundamental issue, which is profit-making in housing. The fact that housing for a lot of people are just an asset, a way of, of making money or moving money around, parking money, all sorts of things that happen in the financial market and that house, housing is just one of the, you know, the instruments for, for, for that kind of activity. Um, so I agree. I argue that there is no housing crisis. What we have here is a market that is set up to allow some people to profit and profit quite a bit and accumulate wealth um, year after year, decade after decade, and pass that wealth from generation to generation, whereas other folks are constantly in a situation of housing security, is struggling to make ends meet, is struggling to pay rent because rent is too high. And it's too high because a large share of their rent is profit, profit that is making the other group wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. So there is no housing crisis for, for a large share of, of the population. There's no housing crisis for a large share of businesses who are in this and work operating in this sector and who are putting out like, you know, double-digit profit margins every year, even during the pandemic, where we had a third of the economy shut down, we had historically high unemployment rates. You look at some of the real estate um, investment trusts, you look at the kind of, 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 of profit margins they managed to achieve that year, it's extremely high, especially in that context. So that, that's, why, that, that, that's why I argue um, there is no housing crisis. There is a market that is allowing some to get wealth and while keeping others in, in a situation of housing security. But there is a very practical implication to that argument, um, which is depending on how we diagnose the crisis, depending on how we diagnose the problem, uh, it will lead us to different conversations about the solution. And that's eventually what I want to get to, right? Now, thank you so much for that. That's fascinating. What has the response been so far uh, from the book when people say that? Because, you know, automatically, I guess, when you say there's a housing crisis, people throw their hands up until they read further and say, okay, I, I understand a bit. But has the response been solid so far? Yes, it's a mix. A mix of response of surprise, of, uh, well, tell me more. Um, but as soon as I just spell it out the argument and say well there are some people who are just getting really wealthy with this and have been getting wealthy and wealthy for decades where there is another share that is just struggling by and had been for a long time you know it's 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 not a crisis for everybody some some are getting away with it some are you know suffering from it people are like yeah that makes sense and and i i, I usually get a, a positive response Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart.
Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're really like these people that are getting really wealthy are kind of dictating the market for everyone else, driving it up, forcing people out. And I think you see in Canada, there's almost two classes of people. Like if you're a homeowner, you're someone. If you're not, you're a no one, right? And, and it's really odd, this fascination with Canadians of home ownership. That's the dream. You, you've made it when you finally own your home, which most of us never do because the bank really owns it. But you know, you address some of that in your book, not that, but you talk about some of the myths around tenants. Let's talk about that. Yeah. So the, you know, the, 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 the political and economic is never too detached from, from the sort of cultural aspects. Right. And there is a, there is a self, there's a, there's a self reinforcing relationship between this, this kind of two sets of, of factors. And in the case of Canada, I agree with you. We have we have a kind of like an obsession with home ownership. It is a question of um, of a status, um, and we can see that clearly when we look at some of the the the, the, the decisions people uh, have been making recently uh, when purchasing a home. The the amount of money they're willing to invest on it uh the fact that they're willing to forego inspections the fact that they're willing to to pay more than the asking prices there's all of these um um decisions that are irrational from a financial perspective uh, but you see it day after day and it can only be explained i think by the fact that it's not only that folks are um you know committed to to owning a place per se that 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 the financial decision but there's some 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 more emotional uh, motivation also behind those decisions that that explain what you know we may call it the rationality of it a little bit um and also has to do with the fact that i think that has to do with the fact that housing security unfortunately in canada is it's hard to achieve through renting right like i think ultimately um a lot of people are, are are you know trying to buy a house not because they're in love with the idea of spending their sunday fixing the basement um but it's because um that's the way they think it's gonna allow them to 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 be more securely housed um and so i think there's a bunch of myths about renting uh, that contributes to that. And, and in the book, we, we have a chapter where we go through some of these myths. Um, one of them is this notion that the renting is a phase uh, that people grow out of renting. Um, so, you know, kind of like when we talk about the minimum wage, we, we have this argument like, ah, young people, you know, they earn a minimum wage, but eventually, you know, they get a better job. And, 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 and um, so there's no, you know, not necessarily a lot of, impetus behind raising the minimum wage if you think that it's only you know people living with the parents who are earning that which it's not true you know there's a lot of older 
adults and, and, and even seniors working for a minimum wage. And this is the same thing with housing. 70% um, of the primary maintainers in tenant households are folks 35 years of age or older. 22% are actually older than 65%. Um, I joke in the book that if, uh, if there's such a thing as a, as a, as a, um, a stereotypical tenant, that is a person who has once upon a time used a fax machine and remembers doing so because it's not a young person necessarily. Um, I think another another myth that I, that I talk about in the book is this notion that tenants don't pay property taxes, um, which is which is, has implications for for city level activism and how um, how entitled people feel to participate in, in, in debates at the local level and to make demands of the, the, the municipal governments. And as we know, you know, property taxes are built into the rent and people pay that even if indirectly through you know, their landlord. Um, another myth is this notion that, um, or this assumption, I think more than a notion, that tenants are not as active in the labor force. Uh, that a large share of tenants are um, either on, on, on social assistance or other kinds of benefits. And yes, a part of them are, but when you compare um, the labor force participation of tenants, uh, people who live in tenant households and people who live in um, home-owned home, home owned households, it's very similar. It's like 64 to 66%. Um, so it also, it's also not true and the only reason it's important to talk about that is because of a broader assumption that um people who rent they do so because you know they, they didn't work in hard enough or they didn't try hard enough because if they had they would have managed you know pull themselves by the bootstraps that the whole sort of mythology about you know the self-made person um and is the fact is like no they're working they're working they're working in low-paying jobs and they're paying a lot in rent. There's not a lot in the end of the month to save to do anything else. And then the final myth that I talk a little bit about is um, is the notion that everyone wants to 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 own. And that's where I go a little bit into that my first point. I say, well, what people are looking for is housing security. Um, and if they can achieve that through means other than ownership, um, you will see. And some we have some survey data on this. Uh, we see the people who chose that option too. I love every, everything you're saying, it rings true. So I, I'm a renter in Toronto. My family and I, we rent. Uh, and quite often, uh, my partner Sylvia will say, you know, at any point, the landlord can ask us to leave, right? You know, so we don't have security. We don't want to do that. We want permanency, right? Things like and what you're saying is we're just throwing away our money rather than see it as that's the housing cost it's cost of living right that's you know and also too with people oh you you don't really have a say because yeah you're not really permanent because you're not a homeowner you don't own part of like so everything is ringing true around that and i think you know in different parts of the world where more uh there's more renters than owners i mean that's just not the same but for in canada for some reason yeah you know you really haven't made it tell you you own that that house and it, it's it's so true all those those different myths but i think the reality is and you know the big question keeping some parents awake 
how is my child ever going to be able to afford to own their own house? And why are we so fascinated or linked to that's the only way they'll be successful if they own their home house some way. So it's changing the mindset. And I think people need to read your book too, because that will help maybe wrap their heads around that too. Parents need to tell their kids, I'm going to love you. Even if you rent for life, that might give people a sense of easy and start being so concerned about it. Um, but jokes aside, I think, I think that's, that is actually extremely important because going back to your very first question, you know, what, what is home for you? You know, for me home right now, it's, is where my kids' school is, you know, and, and I want to be able to tell my kid, no, 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 you like this school, it's fine. You're going to go, you know, you're going to stay there until, you know, until seventh grade, it's fine. And um, again, that kind of security of tenure, um, it's more easily achieved, at least the perception of, of the security of tenure is more easily achieved through home ownership than, than renting. And, and I think that's one of um, the big issues behind here. Um, there's also the question of um, long-term financial security, right? A lot of yeah. people now are, you know, um, counting on their homes to be the reti their retirement plan, um, in large part due to the fact that pension plans um, are more and more rare for folks in the private sector. And the public sector is still a little bit more common, but um, if you are in the private sector, you're less likely to have a you know a pension plan, and so you're betting a lot on, on your housing, kind of feeling that purpose, which has all sorts of negative consequences for the market in general. Yeah, it's so so true. And what you're saying there, when we ask that question, uh, most of the time when people say what does home mean, do the the word safety and security comes up all the time. It's not about the four walls, it's not about the bricks and mortar. It is about the safety. I think that's sometimes what people worry about. How am I going to be secure if? And, and you know what? There is some validity to that too, to the 60 days notice and your life can be uh, upended, right? With, with things turning around. I think we have to change our mentality. Um, <laughs> I mentioned before, we talk quite often on this uh, show, we've had people on that said, listen, homelessness was an issue, always has been in Canada and the US. But even more so in the late 80s, early 90s, when Canada changed policy and their policies changed and the feds got out of the social housing uh, game and we saw almost a skyrocket, right? So it's a result of that uh, policy. In your later chapters, you talk about the class structure and look back on how political history has contributed. I'm, I'm hoping you could expand a little bit around that. Yes. Um... I'm 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 a I'm sort of a, a nerd for 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 social history, and I find it quite um, useful sometimes to to take a step back and and to look at these kinds of of issues that concern us from a slightly more historical perspective. So I did that in in in, in this piece as well, and um, I went into some of the more sort of archives and historical works and brought um, un un uncovered some of the, the movements from the past. They were struggling to, to you know, to achieve housing security. Um, you know, one of my, my, the cases that I discussed in the book goes back to right before Confederation in, in Prince Edward Island and then I talk about other cases. And, and, and I think the goal of, of, of that sort of historic analysis is to show folks 
this is something that has been going on for quite some time. It has to do with how we're structuring the housing market, the fact that we are allowing um, the market to be in charge and we are heavily relying on the market to deliver housing, whereas um, the goal of private market, it's not to deliver housing security. It's almost unfair, quote unquote, to expect them from them because that's not what they do. Private markets deliver profit. And we cannot you know, constantly be asking, why is not delivering housing security? Why is it not making people feel safe in their homes? Why is it not allowing you know, people to promise their kids that they're not going to move to another school? Why is not doing all of these things? Well, because that's not what markets do. Markets, um, especially poorly regulated markets, which is the case here with our housing market, what they do and what they have done, and that's you know the historical perspective, what they have done for quite some time here in Canada is to deliver profit. Um, and so that's a little bit the, the goal and, and, and the gist of, of that economic analysis. Um, oh, sorry, of the historical economic analysis. And then I go a little bit into um, a little bit also into into the role of history and, and, and storytelling and how we tell these stories. Um, I think there's a lot of really good uh, organizing and, 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 and social movement work and activism um, in Canadian history that doesn't get um, enough attention. And I say that as someone who, you know, spent a lot of time um, studying and learning about social movements in Brazil. And then when I moved here, obviously, I was kind of interested in doing the same. It's like, this is where I am right now. And eventually became my home. And I was like, I want to learn more about the history of, of this country and the history, what would happen here and how things came about. And I find it really hard to find information on that. Um, I, I kept stumbling into this sort of official narrative of Canada. And there's like one great man after another having big thoughts in some Ottawa chateau and deciding where the country is going to go. And, and I couldn't find, you know, um, the actual history of actual people who struggled and fought and organized and, and, and put up immense fights against the, 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 the economic system and managed to make space for working class organizing, for teacher unions, for um, all the, the, the great movements that we saw in Toronto as well, anti-poverty movements, the, the movement that brought about rent controls, um, all of that. It's kind of hard to find. Um, and, uh, you know, it takes a nerd like me spend a lot of time looking after, looking for this kind of thing. And then you can start uncovering some threads and you start um, getting a little bit more of understanding of, of that whole history of, of, of normal people in normal times just struggling and, and, and fighting um, an economic system that's sort of rigged and, and, and set up mostly to exploit rather than to support them. Uh, so I talk a little bit about that, and, 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 and it's kind of like a call for, for us to, to document and to learn and, and to talk about this great uh, Canadian tradition of, of organizing and putting up a fight. Yeah, now more than ever, that's needed, right? I mean, uh, it's quite, quite interesting because I think quite often we do look at the government to come up with solutions. Quite often, it's not them that are coming up with the solutions. It, it is the, the activists and, the, and leaders in the community that are with their tireless efforts that push, push and push and put that idea that then 
say, uh, a government might take credit for because they're funding it and move forward, right? Even the idea around the national housing strategy, I mean, that came from years and years of people saying, we need a national housing strategy. And now we're saying, hey, we need a, a separate indigenous housing strategy. People are pushing hard for that and they're tirelessly working, but we don't document that. At the end of the day, what's recognized in the paper is the Liberal government had a national housing strategy, etc. moving forward. Fascinating uh, stuff. Really, really, really cool. And, and thanks for sharing. So if people want to get a hold of this book, they want to read it, and they should, and they want to share it, uh, where can they get it? Well, I think the easiest way right now is to go on the internet, and then you can search for um, the tenant class and between the lines. And um, the first page that is going to come up is the website of uh, this amazing uh, publishing company. And then you can click there and you can order a, a, a pre-order a volume. They're going to start shipping out on May 2nd. Uh, hopefully, we're going to get them to public libraries too. Um, so more folks can have access to it and is my personal commitment as the author to, 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 to help anyone, um, who's, you know, um, a tenant or an organizer who really wants to, to, to read this book, but who needs to prioritize other expenses, just call me, just give me an email, send me an email and I'll figure out a way to get your copy. It shouldn't, you know, the, 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 the price shouldn't be um, a barrier for those who, who really needs to, who, who are really struggling with housing to, to get a hold of this. Amazing. This sounds like it's quite a passion project for you. Uh, we are grateful in the sector for this kind of work. Uh, it certainly helps us a lot. We'll share it widely. I encourage everyone to go buy this book, share it widely. Ricardo, thank you so much for all your work in this sector and for writing this book and, and your contributions is so appreciated. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you too. Thank you all too for the amazing work you do day in and day out. Um, my work here is maybe narrating a little bit of this work, but you, you guys are actually doing the actual work and the actual really hard work. I'm just narrating a little bit about it and, and, and sharing a little bit about those stories, but uh, you're doing all the, the hard pieces of it. You're giving us the tools to do the job. It's so appreciated, man. Thank you so much. I wish you all the best uh, with this book moving forward. Thank you. Bye-bye. So I encourage you, it's the tenant class in between the lines. Check it out. Uh, just Google it up. You can find this book. That's fascinating. I love what Ricardo's saying. Uh, there's a lot of wisdom, knowledge. That's what we do here uh, on the way home is we drop awareness, education, knowledge. That's the only way we're going to move forward and change. So check out this book. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time on the way home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.
produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. 